All right. Well, apparently there's a football game later today. Have you heard? Maybe you haven't heard. I don't know. Uh, if, if regardless of what you feel about sports or football, there's no doubt that the Super Bowl has become a thing. It's an event uh, in our culture, in our world, uh, all across the world. It's kind of become a, a national American phenomenon. I, I don't know. Maybe I would get a few head nods with this, but I, I think the day after the Super Bowl should just be a national holiday, don't you think? Just take off of work, right? That would be pretty awesome. Uh, there is lots of fun to be had uh, with that, just so we know kind of who's in the crowd uh, today when it comes to this, and I'll kind of dictate the rest of the sermon based on this. How many of you are excited for the Super Bowl? You're going to watch the game today. How many of you? Wow. Okay. Um, how many of you are a Bears fan, a Chiefs fan, a Vikings fan, a Packers fan, and you're, you're mourning? Okay. Gotcha. Other than Chris Kimston, our young adult admissions minister, how many Patriots fans in the house? Yeah. Wow. Apparently, you can boo in church. I didn't know that. Uh, Chris, you and the three Patriots fans can have a support group after the service today. That's awesome. How many of you don't care about football and you love the commercials? <laughs> you don't care about football. And how many people are just going to watch the commercials? Like, you just love the, not the game? Okay, we'll, we'll have a little treat for you later on the service. How many of you just don't care about sports at all? Okay. How many of you are fired up for church today? There we go. Okay. That's good. <laughs> like, well, the pastor asked, so I should probably say that. Seem, you know, you, when you're in study school, the correct answer is either Jesus or a squirrel, you know, so whatever, whatever comes out. That sounds about right. Well, uh, it's, it's a good thing that there is more to life than football. Amen? And we remember that particularly this weekend around Hope, uh, not because of the Super Bowl, but the S-O-U-P-E-R Bowl, the Super Bowl food drive. When you walked in, it was so much fun to see people coming in with like their bulletin and their baby carrier and their coffee and then a giant thing of groceries, you know, like that's not normally how you see people walking into worship. But we have been doing this Super Bowl food drive uh, now for many, many years, long as I've been at Hope, and uh, it's awesome. It is so cool to see, and thank you to all of you that brought donations. You can bring those later on today if you want to uh, as well. But as Chris said, we'll be sorting those right after uh, the service. And you might think like, oh, you know, that's kind of a fun little cute thing that we do. But it really makes an impact. When you realize, uh, I read this week, that there are over 27,000 people in Polk County alone that struggle with hunger every single day. Every single day. And 13,000 of those are children. Kids the same age as the ones that you just saw up front. And to me, being a pastor of a church in Polk County, and particularly downtown where there is a lot of need for those families, being a church that's in the city, it is not acceptable for us to stand by when that is the case. And we can do something about that, and we have. And I think now, I can honestly say, the streak is alive for the last six or seven years. Hope, one church, multiple locations at all of our campuses, we have been able to stock every single food pantry Every single shelf of every single food pantry, not just in Des Moines, but of central Iowa, over 100 food pantries. So praise God for that. That is awesome. So thank you for being an incredibly generous church. And I don't say that to, to toot our own horn and say, wow, look at us. I say that to say, wow, look at God, that only he could do that through a church. One of the many reasons that we say this phrase a lot at Hope, that we are better together. Turn to your neighbor right now, wherever you are, and say, we're better together. Tell him that right now. We're better together. We truly are. It's not just a phrase. There is no way that any of us by ourselves could stock every food pantry in Central Iowa. It's just not the case. We are truly better together. That's why we need each other. 
That's why we are a church. And I, can I just say, I love it. I love it that I get to be a part of a church and that you get to be a part of a church here at Hope that is known way more for what we're for than what we're against. That we're a church that's known for making an impact in the community. Praise God for that. Praise God. We want people to see that and know, man, there's something different about those people. They're not just getting together and going through the motions and having their little holy huddle there uh, as a church. There's something different. There's something different, and it's the power of God. It's the love of Jesus Christ. We're better together. I don't know if you're going to watch the game or not. It doesn't matter, but maybe if you've watched a sporting event in the past, or maybe you'll see this later on in the game today, chances are, whether it's football or baseball or basketball or whatever it is, before the game or when somebody goes up to bat or before they're ready to, to kick the winning field goal or something like that, inevitably, you've probably seen an athlete do something like this, right? You're seeing that, right? Some of my Catholic friends are like, come on, you're stealing our sign, right? That's okay. It's a very sacred thing for those of you that grew up Catholic, and maybe it's become a tradition for you, but the danger is, is that we forget what it's about, right? You see athletes doing it. You see, uh, how many of you remember Tim Tebow up there in the upper right-hand corner, right? Tim Tebow fans out there? Three of you? Okay, great. I uh, love Tim Tebow. Great guy. Came, un came under tons of scrutiny a couple years ago for praying. Literally, before, during, and after games, he would get down and on one knee, and they literally named a verb, like, you, you Tebow, right? We, had, we did that in our VBS skits. We Tebowed, right? That's what you do, and yet he came under tons of scrutiny for doing that and for making the sign of the cross or wearing John 3.16 underneath his eyes and things like that. But you see athletes do this, and I don't know about you, but I've wondered a time or two, what are they thinking? Like, not in a judgmental way, but just in a, I wonder what that means to them. What, what, what does, when you do that, even, even those of you that come up for communion or if you grew up doing that, or what, what goes through your mind? Way more important than, than, than what the athletes are thinking. It's not our job to judge. That's God's job. But when, when, when you see that, I wonder what's going through their heads. And way more importantly than that, what comes to mind when you think of the cross? When you make that sign, when, when you see the cross, whether it's, you know, here in the worship center, or you see a lot of people wear the, the cross uh, around their neck, uh, maybe in a necklace, or you see a, a picture on, on your, your parents' wall or your grandmother's wall or something uh, like that, or maybe you did grow up Catholic and you've just done this. It's almost like muscle memory now to come up and do that. You're like, oh, I wasn't even thinking, but I just do it. What does that mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? Because the truth is, how you view the cross will determine what you do with the cross. How you view the cross will determine what you do with the cross. I have an interesting cross up here that means a lot to me that's been hanging out in my office for the last uh, five years. You might be wondering, John, that cross looks very, very, uh, very, very familiar, and it, and it should because it looks exactly like that. This was one of about four prototype crosses that when we had some amazing woodworkers, uh, handymen, handywomen here from the church that... Uh, helped me design uh, and implement and then build and design that cross uh, for our new building. And this is one of the, the crosses, the, the one that we eventually landed on. And so I wonder, when, when you see that, what do you think of? What, what, what comes to mind? What best describes how you view the cross? For some, they would look at a, a cross and say, well, you know, I just kind of treat it more as a good luck charm. You know, it's around my, my, my neck or I hold it. You see people, you know, holding a, a cross or a rosary or something like that. There's probably, if the game is close tonight, you're going to see some people holding on to it and say, 
oh God, if he makes this field goal, if my team wins, I'll, I'll pray every day for the rest of my life and I'll be at church every single, you know, whatever it is. Now, no, we have a lot more people in church the following weekend, right? I'll go to church every weekend of my life, whatever it is. Is it a good luck charm for you? Is it, is it more of just a religious symbol? Like, oh yeah, that, you know, that stands for Christianity versus Islam or Buddhism. What, that's, that's the sign for Christianity. For those maybe on the outside looking in that are not really religious at all, they would just say, oh yeah, the cross, that was the it's an instrument of death. I mean, it was. It was an instrument of Roman execution and, and nothing more than that. Or, yeah, I know Jesus died and that was a historical event that happened, but nothing much more than that. Or maybe you see it in, uh, in a church or in stained glass windows or whatever it is and it's a nice religious symbol. The reason I ask you is because how you view the cross will determine what you do with the cross and what you do with the cross changes everything. What you do with the cross changes everything. And that was really the question that the Apostle Paul was posing before the church in Corinth in our scripture reading for today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, like we said earlier, they are on the back bookshelf and all around the worship center. We would encourage you to grab one. We are in the year of the Bible here at Hope. Whether you have your physical Bible in front of you or your... um, app on your phone uh, or your uh, iPad or whatever you have, go ahead and take those out. I know you have your phones because we can see them and you can use them to read the Bible uh, as well. The book of 1 Corinthians, we're reading 12 books in 12 months here at Hope and in the month of January, we uh, read through the book of Acts, looked at some fun stories. Anybody enjoy going through the book of Acts the last few weeks? Anybody? Four of you. More more people enjoyed Acts than our Patriots fans, so that's good. Uh, Awesome. (laughs) Maybe you're glad that we're done uh, with Acts. We're moving. Chris enjoyed Acts, right? Thank you. Uh, There are uh, a lot of reasons uh, to read the Bible, but one of them is that we get a picture of who we are as a people. And so we're moving into this book of 1 Corinthians. I'm really excited about it. 1 Corinthians. And so uh, you think about Corinthians like, what is it? 1 Corinthians as opposed to 2 Corinthians. Well, 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote back to the church in Corinth that he helped start. Biblical scholars will agree that Paul wrote these two letters back to the church in Corinth. So where's Corinth? Corinth is right there on the left side of the map with the big red arrow there, just east of Des Moines. And uh, <laughs> some of you will get that on the way home. And there's Corinth right there in Greece. And so you can see on the map where some of these main areas are in, in, in Jesus's time and in Paul's time. Down the bottom right corner is Jerusalem where Christianity started, where the church uh, was born as well. And then you start to see some of these other cities. You see Ephesus, right? That should ring a bell because there's a book called Ephesians, right? You see the city of uh, uh, Philippi, which is where Paul planted a church and then wrote a letter called Philippians, right? These aren't, these aren't made up things in your Bible. These are really historical events that Paul wrote to specific people. Eventually, uh, the gospel goes to Italy, goes to Rome, where we get the book of Romans, right? And then there we have Corinth. So Corinth was uh, a, a major trade uh, port uh, as well, and so there's a lot of diversity there. It's a very cultured town, and this was one of the main places that Paul wanted to plant the gospel and plant a church. Corinth was, uh, the book of First Corinthians was probably written somewhere uh, on Paul's second missionary journey between A.D. 53 and 57. And because it was a very important port city and a trade city, travelers and influence from all over the world, different cultures, and of course different spiritual influences came into Corinth uh, as well. And so is this weird kind of religious spiritual combination of, uh, of the Jews, uh, but then you also had the Gentiles, everybody that wasn't a Jew. And Paul's really going to focus in our reading today on the Greeks. And if you know anything, remember growing up and studying Greek mythology, d- did they have one God? No, they had multiple gods, right? And so this is a challenge for Paul to come in and say, actually, there's 
one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's not a sun God and a moon God and, and all these different uh, earth God and all these different things. There's one God, right? So you have Jews and Greeks and Gentiles and all these pagan traditions all from all over the world coming together in Corinth, right? And so Paul has his hands full, and you thought it was crazy to have former, you know, Catholics and Lutherans and Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals all under one roof here at Hope, right? That's crazy. Paul really had his hands full. And so what Paul does is because of some of these controversies that were stirring up, he writes letters back to the church because there was a lot of different belief systems and religions. There was some funky stuff going on in Corinth. The best way I can describe it to you, in Paul's day, Corinth was the, was the original Vegas, okay? There is some stuff going down. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Like, it was that sort of thing, right? There was all sort of sin and debauchery and, and immorality and just weird stuff going on that you would not want your kids to know about, right? And so that was Corinth, and some of that was creeping into the church. And so Paul wrote these letters back to correct some of that behavior, and at the center of this controversy was, what exactly is the role of the cross, why in the world, in this new movement called the way, which turns into Christianity, why is at the center of that a cross? Why in the world is an execution symbol from the enemy, the Romans, <laughs> the symbol of our faith? And really, who is this Jesus person, and how does he translate to these different cultures? And that's why Paul writes here in verse 22. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Let's read it nice and loud together up on the screen. Jews demand signs... And Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, okay? So this gives you sort of a, a snapshot into what Paul uh, is trying to correct in their understanding of the gospel. Essentially, you have the Jews and the Greeks that are both trying to make sense of the person of Jesus, and they're trying to fit this person of Jesus sort of into their own box, into their own understanding of what the cross is and who Jesus is is, that, that makes sense to them. So first of all, you've got the Jews that are living there in Corinth. And if you know anything about the Jews, we've talked about in Acts the last few weeks, the Jews are God's people. And for thousands of years, they have waited and waited for a Messiah to come and kick out the Romans and restore order and, and, and restore Jewish rule and reign. They thought that when the Messiah, when the Savior of the world came, that he would be, well, a military, a great warrior king like King David, and he would kick those Romans out, and then he would become this great political leader, and that's how they would have victory, and that he would come riding in as a military king with a, with a sword dipped in blood and a chariots and horses and a giant army. At least that was their assumption of what the Messiah would be. It's like they had this box of assumptions, and that's who they thought that Jesus would be. And then... Along comes Jesus, and he speaks of peace more than war. And instead of power, he talks about how true power is when you love. True power is when you serve and put others before you. And then he, he washes people's feet, and he loves people, and he heals people. And then, and, then, and then when he's supposed to come in as the conquering king, riding into Jerusalem, he comes in riding a donkey? This is our great king, the, 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 the king of the Jews, the savior of the world. It doesn't fit in my box of assumptions about Jesus at all. And then three days later, our conquering king is hanging dead on a cross. 
And so we're not too excited, Jesus, about the cross being at the center of who we are now because we're ashamed of it. Our king, many Jews to this time, believe that Jesus never even rose from the dead, that he wasn't the true Messiah. Many Jews to this day don't believe that Jesus was the true Messiah, let alone that he came back from the dead and is with us now. And so the cross was this symbol of scorn and shame. It was an instrument of torture from the enemy. And that didn't fit in their box of assumptions. Jesus didn't fit. What do you do when the reality of who Jesus is doesn't fit in your box? And that's why Paul writes that it's a stumbling block. The gospel, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. They just couldn't get over it. They assumed. And we all know what happens and the danger that comes when we assume. Now, the reason I asked you if anybody likes the commercial side of the Super Bowl earlier is that I have one of my favorite commercials was several years back, and it's about the power of assumptions and when we assume and when we judge a little bit too quickly. By the way, if you're new, it's okay to laugh in church. In fact, we encourage it. You should laugh at church more than any other place because of the joy of the Lord. Watch closely at the power of what happens when we judge too quickly. Take a look. Now you're never going to forget this sermon, right? You're going to have that lodged in your head forever, right? That lady came walking in, and she probably assumed the worst, right? She assumed the worst. We all have a box of assumptions, whether it's with your boyfriend hanging your cat with a knife or what, whether it comes to our faith and Jesus, we all have a box of assumptions just like the Jews. I, I wonder, what are the things that are in your box of assumptions when it comes to who Jesus is? When it, when it comes to church, when it comes to Christianity, what are your assumptions? I know from talking with a lot of you, one of the things that I think a lot of us struggle with is that maybe when you grew up, church was a part of your life, but it was just kind of something you did. I mean, we, we, we go to church, and, and my, my parents brought me, but it was, it was never full of life. It, it wasn't life-giving. It wasn't passion. I, I didn't get excited about going, and I just went because, well... That's what you're supposed to do. That's what we do. We go to church on Sundays. That's what we do. But there was nothing more than that. Sunday didn't have anything to do with Monday through Saturday. And so that was an assumption you just put in your box and you live with that. And then because you weren't interested in church as a kid and as a student, you just assumed that, well, kids probably aren't that excited to go to worship either. And so then I'm just not going to make it really a priority to bring my kids because everybody knows that kids don't like church. And so I'm just going to put that in my box of assumptions about Jesus and the church as well. Maybe something else that's in your box is that you've just kind of made up your mind and predetermined. Everybody knows that real friendship and real community can't really happen in the church. And that goes in your box as well. Maybe some of you are, are thinking, you know, if I'm going to go out and, you know, have a good time on Friday or Saturday night, I mean, I got my people that I sit next to at church and smile and nod. Everybody knows you kind of have to put on a little mask at church, but then I can really be myself and go hang out with my real friends the rest of the week. Because everybody knows you can't have real friendships with church people because they're weird, right? <laughs> what happens when that just gets blown out of the water? What happens when the reality and you meet some people or you join a small group and you're like, I really like these people. <laughs> these are the most real, authentic people that I've met. And I can, I can be real. And, and if you can't be real about your struggles at church, where can you be real? This should be the, most, the safest place for you to be at church. 
but we've assumed and, and we live as though that's an assumption that we just believe is true. And I got to find community elsewhere. I can't find that in the church. I'll go find that at my yoga class. I'll go find that on the golf course or in the gym or on the bleachers with other. And, and that's fine. But don't just assume that. Check it out. Maybe some of you have made the assumption, well, I mean, you know, John, you talk about, about, about joy and then it comes from giving, but, but when it comes to tithing and, and giving that first 10% back to God, everybody knows that, that you just got to take care of yourself first. Nobody really finds joy when they give that first 10% and tithe back to God. I'll take care of myself first, and if there's anything left, then I'll give it to God, right? Real joy comes from looking out for yourself first. Well, that would be the world's box of assumptions that we have just bought right into. Have you ever taken God up on that? And you'll talk to a lot of people here around worship and around Hope Des Moines that have taken God up on that, and that box goes away. You don't realize how much joy there is in putting God first in your life. Or we make assumptions like, well, everybody knows, John, when you reach that certain season of your life, when you have young kids, there's about a, a 10-year span where you're just a full-time Uber driver as a parent, right? Everybody knows, right, that from 8 to 18, that's about what you do. It's the Uber years of your life, right? And because you're so busy and because our family's so busy, because everybody else is so busy around us, we just got to get on that treadmill. And everybody knows we just assume that we got to take a step back from the church and from our faith and for those 10 years we'll kind of take a step back and then when the kids are out of the house then we'll get serious about our faith again because that's when you can do it or at least that's what we assume and then you talk to some young parents here at the church that are on fire for Jesus Christ they're tired and yet they're on fire for Jesus Christ because they know that even though the days are long as young parents the years are short the days are long and the years are short and you realize time goes by so quick and Jesus does not want to be put on the shelf. Don't put that in your box of assumptions. What do you do when the real Jesus and your experience of the church doesn't fit in your box of the church? I love talking uh, with many of you before and after worship or at coffee or lunch and as I'm talking to a lot of you that maybe have, have come and you're new to the church and I'm saying, hey, how was your experience I'm going to go ahead and take your response as a compliment because a lot of people say, you know what, I had this box of assumptions when it came to going to a Lutheran church, a traditional Lutheran church, and their response, you know, how was it? And they say, well, it wasn't that boring. <laughs> or it wasn't too boring. Okay, that's good. That's the first step. I'm going to take that as a compliment, right? And then they say weird things like, my kids want to come back. Like they had such a good time, and it's not like, I'm dragging the kids, like the kids are inviting me. They're like, mom and dad, can we go to worship because they have so much fun here? It's the same thing with our students. Have you noticed who's serving today? Who's walking around serving and doing communion and ushering and greeting and all of that? It's our students that are not the future of the church. They're the church right now here today. Praise God for the students and the kids of this church that are leading the way. They're not leaving the church to come back someday. They are leading, not leaving, leading the church. And that's any sign of a healthy church. Praise God for that. Maybe that's your assumption. One of the, the biggest assumptions, I think, was, was blown up for me several years ago when we were meeting back at Hubble. We do a ministry called Breakfast Club on Sunday morning where we reach out and we pick up at eight or nine different homeless shelters and under bridges and tent camps and bring in people that would not have a chance to worship otherwise. And a couple of those gentlemen were walking out of worship one day down the hallway, and I heard one <laughs> look at the other, and like with all genuineness and genuine shock after just experiencing hope for the first time, he looked at his buddy, he kind of had his arm around him, and he said, man, I love bacon. He said that first. 
because they had breakfast. And then I'll never forget what he said next. He said, you know what? It's like they really love us here. I, I think I fell over. I'm like, I can retire. I'm done. That's it. Like, it doesn't get any better than that. Because they had in their box of assumptions that the church and religious people are a bunch of hypocritical, judgmental, you know what, and I don't want anything to do with them. And they had assumed that, you know, Lutheran Church of Hope is this big mega church, and they're probably in it for themselves. And then you come back and you discover that we gave $4.4 million away to missions last year at all of our campuses. And these, you just you have, to, you have to drop the box and you realize, you know what? Maybe they really do love us here. What do you do when Jesus and the cross doesn't fit into your box of assumptions? Well, you get rid of your box. And you let Jesus come on his terms rather than on your terms. But the Jews weren't the only ones that struggled with the cross. It was also the Greeks. If you go back to the passage to verse 23, Paul says, we preach the cross foolishness to the Gentiles. Everybody say foolishness. Foolishness Foolishness to the Gentiles. And when Paul says the Gentiles, most of them in Corinth were the Greeks because it is in Greece after all. So why would the cross be foolishness to the Greeks? Well, you have to understand that the country of Greece and really the, the, uh, the uh, town of Corinth uh, was a highly educated, highly elite, highly cultured with music and the, the arts and theater and full of academia and, and elite scholars and philosophers and thinkers of the day. I got a firsthand glimpse of this back in college. I got to go on this trip to Italy and we got to visit uh, Rome and different places in Italy and then we also swung over to Greece and I got to stand in Corinth and stand in one of the, I mean it was this holy moment of this is where the Apostle Paul stood when he argued in the temple and in the synagogue. It was just this really cool experience. But one of the things you realize is that, that, that Corinth is a really, really old city. I mean, it's older than America. I mean, it's <laughs> by several centuries and millennia. It is very, very old, and there's a lot of rich tradition and history there. And so imagine being the Apostle Paul in a city full of scholars and thinkers and philosophers and artists and everything, that the highly elite of the day, and you come in, and this is your pitch for who you think that they should believe is their savior. Well, there, uh, there was this teenage girl, and we're not sure how she got pregnant, but she got pregnant, and it was the savior of the world that was in her belly, and then he was born in a barn, because they didn't have a home for it. Well, he was homeless, and then uh, he grew up and kind of lived in relative obscurity for about 30 years, and then he just loved people and served people, and he basically didn't have a home, and he hung out with all the poor people and the homeless and the sinners uh, for about three years, and then he got himself killed uh, on purpose on a Roman cross, and uh, he saved you from your sins, and so he should be your savior too. How does that work in Corinth, right? Foolishness. Foolishness, you might say, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. That, 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 That doesn't make sense, and so you might say that the box that the Greeks had was pride. I'm, I'm good. What, why would I need a savior if there's nothing I need saving from? If you're the Greeks, you're like, I don't really need that. I'm smart. I'm educated. I'm wealthy. I'm well-to-do. I, 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 my life is fine. The problem is when you're full of yourself, there's no room for Jesus. When you're full of yourself, there's no room for a savior, and it doesn't fit in your box either in All of us maybe struggle with that a little bit sometimes, too. We have our box of 
pride. And not that just like the Greeks in Corinth, it's not that we're against the cross, it's just that we don't think that we need it, or so it seems. I mean, if you're honest, some of you are sitting here today saying, John, thanks for the sermon and everything, but I'm pretty good. Talk about the cross and Jesus dying for our terrible sins and all that. Life is really good. I, I, I got this great relationship. I'm married, maybe. I, I've got some great kids. I've got a great house. I've got a good job. I've got some fun hobbies, right? And you maybe never say it out loud, but some of you are like, you know, John, I, I kind of like being in control. You know, part of living in this box is that I kind of like to call the shots and be the director of my own life. I, I, I like Jesus being my Savior, but I certainly don't need him to be my Lord. I mean, after all, it's my money, it's my life, it's my finances, it's my marriage, it's my house, it's my retirement account, it's my future, it's my priorities. Things seem to be just fine, and yet the danger of living in the box of pride, the danger of being fine is that you don't think that you need to change. And yet as I look around our church, I've been thinking about this for a while, seems like the people that feel close to Jesus and that are growing in their faith and that are passionate about Jesus are the people that have hit rock bottom. You know what I mean? And I struggle with that sometimes myself too because I, when, I, when I think that I'm doing pretty well is when I kind of squeeze Jesus out of my life because I think I'm doing pretty well without him. And I forget the very reason that I have breath in my lungs that I'm able to stand up here today is purely because of grace. And there are two ways to live. One is as if everything in our life is a miracle. And the other one in the box of pride is if nothing is a miracle. That somehow the world owes you something and that you're just good and you're fine. That was the Greeks in Corinth. And maybe that's some of you today as well. But the problem is even when life is good and you're doing fine and you don't feel like you need the cross or you need a savior... You can't escape that ache inside. That when you're alone and the kids are finally asleep and you have a moment of peace and in the quietness of your own heart you hear that still small voice calling out to you, you know there's more. You know there's more. Because even when you have it all, there's still that ache. And nobody knows that better than somebody that you may have heard of, a certain quarterback that's going to be playing later today. We'll just call him Tom, right? You know him as Tom Brady, the quarterback of the Patriots. If you don't know anything about sports or football, let me just tell you this. Most football experts would regard Tom Brady, he's 41, which is like really, really old for the NFL, right? Uh, and so most football experts would say that he's not only the greatest quarterback, but the greatest football player to ever live. He's got everything. He's got five Super Bowl rings, one for every finger, and he wears them. I mean, bling, bling, folks. He's got it all. He has multiple multi-million dollar endorsement deals. He's got it all. In the eyes of the world, he is more than fine. He's got it. And yet I've been fascinated this past year. There was a documentary done called Tom versus Time. And it was an insider's look at himself and his uh, wife, Giselle, and their family and their kids. And as you watch this clip, even for the guy that has everything, just like the Greeks in Corinth, the guy that's doing just fine in the eyes of the world, see if you can watch and listen for that ache in his soul that knows what he's chasing is never going to be enough. Take a look.
Spirituality means a lot of different things to different people. And I think for me, it's your deepest purpose. I do want to know the whys of life. I want to know why we're here, you know, where we're going. Trying to find that deeper purpose. He did tell me that he was going to play only for 10 years. I just want to say that. When I met him in 2006, he said, listen, I'm just going to play for 10 more years and I'm going to win one Super Bowl and I'm going to be happy. And then I talked him last year, I said, well, I think this is great. You know, like, what a great win. Now you won two Super Bowls. It's the end of the 10th year. Like, you know, now we're going to go and... Live in Costa Rica. And I was like, yo, let's go. I'm ready. But then he's you like, know, no. Still got a few more to go. Yeah, he said that. I mean, football, as far as I'm concerned, it's like <laughs> his first love. <laughs> I mean, it really is. And I think it's like his main love, really, quite frankly. <laughs> and if he tells me, like, oh, it's true. I'm not putting energy or focus on things that I don't deem that are important. Even though other people may say, man, this is really important. And I'm like, no, it's not. You know, that's not important at all. I'm going to determine what's important for me. Two more Super Bowls. Two more. <laughs> that could be shorter than I five think or six it could years. be. I think as long, I mean, he can have as many Super Bowls as he likes. The only thing I believe that limits us is time. What do we want to do with this time? I mean, I don't know. I think we have to ask ourselves those questions and see what's important. So it's about priorities, you know? What are the priorities? Now, as they were talking there, um, those of you that are married in the room, husbands, have you ever gotten the look from your wife? <laughs> As a word of comfort this morning, even Tom Brady gets the look from his wife once in a while. Really? Really, you're just going to win two Super Bowls? Then, then, then I'll be satisfied. <laughs> I only have five Super Bowls. I'm all, I've only made $25 million I, this year. I, I just need a little bit more. Because when you're living in that box where you're the director of your life and you're calling the shots, you think that's where the fulfillment is going to come from. Did, did, did you notice? Did you notice in the video? He's so close. He's so close. I want to know the why questions of life. I want to know what my purpose is. I want to know what my identity is. Tom, you're so close. <laughs> and I'm going to cheer for him, not the Patriots. I'm going to cheer for Tom. I'm going to pray for him, right? Because I want him to know, just like I want all of you to know, there is a way that you can know. And it's not by chasing everything that the world has to offer. Tom has it all. And it's not enough. In the eyes of the world, he's more than fine. And yet there's still that ache inside. And I just want to say this, that maybe fulfillment doesn't come from calling the shots in your own life. I know it's cool for Tom Brady to say, I'm the one that gets to decide what's important and what my priorities are. And that sounds really cute and sexy. It doesn't fill you up. You heard it from him himself. I don't, I, I don't know what it is. Spirituality is finding with that meaning and purpose, and apparently we haven't found it yet, and I pray that he finds it. Maybe there's a difference between what Tom 
wants and what Tom really needs. Maybe there's a difference between what we think we want in life and what we truly need. The Jews were convinced, their assumption was, is that they needed a political king. If we could just get political power, then we would be back on top. That was their assumption. And the Greeks assumed that if we could find somebody just as smart, a little smarter than us, that could be a thought leader and a philosopher, then we would follow him. But God, in his wisdom, thank God, through Jesus Christ, gave us what we needed, not just what we wanted. Amen? Through the cross and the salvation and the forgiveness that is in the meaning and the purpose. Tom, are you listening? That's only available in Jesus Christ, right? And I, I hope that he knows. And, and, and I pray for him. And I pray for people that don't know that. And I want him to know that. And knowing that I live in those boxes sometimes, we all do. Thank God that there are people in our lives that give us what we need, not just what we Want. And I'm not just saying that. I have firsthand experience with this. That phrase pretty much sums up the first couple years of my marriage. Now, I don't know where that picture came from. Um, <laughs> there you go. She hasn't changed one bit. Uh, this past year uh, was our, oh, this coming year uh, will be our 10th anniversary of the church. Next year will be our 10th anniversary. I don't know uh, what happened to him, but she hasn't changed uh, one bit. But I remember our first year of marriage, it was awesome, and it was beautiful, and it was hard. It was really, really hard. Before I got married, when I was batching it, I could do whatever I wanted. I could stay out late. I could set my own agenda. I could exercise if I wanted. I didn't have to read my Bible because nobody would ever know. I didn't have to eat right. I could do whatever I want. And, and then you get married, and apparently, a part of somebody loving you is that they challenge you on things, and they don't let you take the easy way out. And so about halfway through our first year of marriage, I just about had it with this woman. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was great and everything, but after a year of this, one night in desperation, okay, this was just the last two weeks, okay, she was forcing me to eat healthy. <sighs> she was challenging me to exercise three times a week. I mean, who does these things, right? She wasn't buying frozen pizzas for me anymore every day, right? She, she had the audacity to challenge me as the spiritual leader of our home to pray over our day together in the morning to do, to do family devotions after dinner at night. I mean, she even had the audacity to say, you know, you're always talking about being in community and starting small groups. Why don't we join a couples group together? What? I was just going to preach about it. I wasn't going to actually do it, right? <laughs> How dare you challenge me on these things and rub me the wrong way? And so I just about had it. And I remember about six months into it, I stood up. I remember this moment in our old house. I stood up halfway through dinner, and I said, that's about it. And with every ounce of pride and selfishness left in me, I stood up and I say, honey, you are ruining my life for the better. Because I had assumed that the point of marriage was to make me happy. And that's what a lot of couples struggle with. There's no room for challenge. There's no room for iron sharpening iron because you think that the point of the other person is to make you happy instead of to make you holy. That the point of marriage in any relationship is for both of you to look more and more like Jesus, for you to do whatever it takes to help that person look more and more like Jesus, even if it rubs them the wrong way sometimes. You do that in love and you speak the truth in love, but I, I had assumed that marriage was about finding somebody that would always give me what I wanted and to have a partner that would always agree with me on everything and never challenge me on anything. And then I realized I totally married up. 
I totally married up because I married somebody that loved me enough to give me what I needed, not just what I wanted. Because that's love. Whether it's in marriage or parenting or friendship or in your small group or with the God that created you. When you love somebody, you give them not what they thought that they needed, but what they really needed. Thank God that in his wisdom, God gave us the Savior that we needed, not just (laughs) the Savior that we assumed that we needed. And today, Jesus says you can put down your boxes. (laughs) And you know that ache inside that you feel? There's something that can fill it. There's something that can be that more that you're looking for. We got the cross, which is exactly what we needed. And that's why Paul says in verse 18 there in our reading, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul says there's a deeper need. Let me speak to you on a little deeper level this morning. You need something deeper than the cross as a, as a good luck charm or a religious symbol. You need something deeper than a politician or, or, or a philosopher or some inspirational quote. You need the power of God. You need the cross, which is the power of God that can defeat the two things that you will never be able to defeat on your own. And that is sin and death, your own death. And thank God that in the cross, we have that and more. We have a cross that can offer us forgiveness for the mistakes of our past. It can fill that ache inside that won't go away for a cross and a savior that can give you a life that is more than fine. No matter what box we try to stick Jesus in, he just won't fit. Praise God for the Savior that we needed. Because what you do with the cross changes everything. And this morning, I want to challenge you, because that's what you do when you love people. I want to challenge you. Don't minimize it. Don't avoid it. Surrender to it. Put Jesus at the very center of your life. Which is why it wasn't just a prototype. That's what we ended up doing, and there's a giant cross in not a very big room. And I remember when we first put it up there, our design team freaked out, and they went, oh no, John, I think it's a little bit too big. And I looked back, and I said, and that's the point, that it would be obnoxiously big, that it would be the the center of our attention. In fact, that wall that it's on is supposed to be facing that way. The cross is supposed to be facing that wall right there to be at the same angle as that wall. And the last minute we said, forget the floor plans. We're changing it. And we turned the wall so that the cross would face directly back so that every time you walk through those doors, it would be undeniable what we are about as a church. We are about Jesus Christ. We're not ashamed of the gospel. And we preach the cross and Jesus and Christ crucified because without him, we've got nothing. He's not just the reason we exist and have a church named Hope. He's the reason that we have hope, period. Without him, we have nothing. Thank God for the cross, because that's what we're about at Lutheran Church of Hope, is Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we exist. Praise God. That's who we are as a church. It's the power of God, and it's changing you. It's changing us as a church. And how do I know? It's been an incredible month of January. Right in the middle of whatever people are calling it, hashtag polar vortex or something like that, can we just say that the last month has been the worst month weather-wise in a long time? It's been terrible, right? It was, neg- it was colder here than Antarctica last week. God, what are you thinking, right? 
And so you would think in the philosophy and the wisdom of the world, you'd say, Pastor John, shut it down. Nobody's going to come to church in January. You might as well cancel all the classes. Nobody's going to come and serve. Nobody's going to sign up for classes and discipleship. Nobody's going to come and bring food. For Everybody's just going to huddle up together. You might as well just shut it down unless you're a church on fire in the middle of a polar vortex. January was awesome. You rocked it during the month of January. God did his thing in amazing ways during the month of January. This is just the last four weeks, folks. We started out beginning of January. Over 70, of, close to 70 of you came up to receive new life in baptism. Later that day, over 30 of you joined the church in our new membership class. A couple of weeks, last week, we started CORE, our Next Step Discipleship class. We had close to 60 people in that. The next day, Monday night, the building was hopping. It was negative 30 out, and the building was hopping here. It was a party. We had a prayer class going on, and our breakfast club outreach ministry was meeting, and our men's kickoff was last week, and all these guys were coming out and connecting. Men crying together praying together. What has gotten into you? And all these things keep happening. And even more than that, even more than numbers, you're, you're connecting with each other. You're, you're huddling up and praying for each other. I love the way that you love each other. I love the stories that I hear from small groups of, of caring for each other and people inviting their friends, not to mention who has a parking problem in the middle of January in Iowa. We do, apparently, because God is just that good. And we're thankful for that. Not to mention the last two weeks, because it's been so cold, those buses don't work very well. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of people that are not able to come unless they have a ride. Well, guess what you did? We had dozens of volunteers volunteer willingly to get up at some insane hour of the morning in their own cars and go pick up at all these different pickup locations so that every single person that wanted to worship at Hope that weekend had an opportunity to do so. That's awesome. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> and now a lobby full of food. Looks like a grocery store back there, right? And that's just the first month of 2019. I mean, I can't wait for the rest. A church on fire in the middle of January. In the eyes of the world, foolishness. But to those of us that have caught a glimpse of the love of Jesus Christ, it's the power of God. All because you're putting the cross and you're putting Jesus not off to the side in your list of priorities, but you're putting the cross at the very center of your life because what you do with the cross of Jesus Christ changes everything. Amen? We don't get to just talk about it today. We get to experience it. So let's stand together and prepare our hearts for Holy Communion. <laughs>